0: Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The The Business Business Exit Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful, and yes, some not so successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit.
1: Today we have with us Jeff Rich, an investment banker located in the northeastern part of the U.S. I would like you to listen to how Jeff describes a company he worked with that walked away from a $35 million offer and months later was forced to accept a mere $2 million offer. How does a $35 million offer fall to $2 million? I would like to see if you can relate to the logic that this entrepreneur used when he walked away from his higher-priced $35 million offer and what the big takeaway might be for you as you listen to this story. You know, we often hear from time to time that niche businesses are the best businesses to own. However, while this is almost always true, there are situations where being niched is not necessarily a good thing. Jeff shares how when market conditions change at the macro level, how these changes can dramatically impact what happens at ground level or the micro level, and why understanding and forecasting these types of trends is really important. In fact, being able to do this may make the difference between an exit or having no exit at all. Listen to what Jeff has to say about this. Jeff then pivots and talks about a couple of transactions that turned out much better than anyone involved could have ever anticipated. I want you to listen closely to why and how these transactions unfolded, paying particular attention to how the macro trends can not only impact a business negatively, but also positively. The transaction that Jeff shares today illustrates this concept perfectly. This transaction talks about why properly positioning a company in the market is so important and can, and often does, make millions of dollars of difference in what the entrepreneurs are able to take and put in the bank, and why companies are willing to pay more than a company is worth, and actually sometimes a lot more. This is one of those episodes that can literally make an entrepreneur millions of extra dollars in profit on an exit if they understand and apply these concepts when exiting their own business. Finally, Jeff wraps up this episode with a transactional story of how being prepared to take advantage of a change in governmental legislation 10x'd a business. Being aware and then capitalizing on a trend together with the proper planning and execution took a business from a few hundred thousand dollars in profits to ten times that amount in a few short years. See if you can identify the big takeaway that any entrepreneur can use in their own business. So let's get going. Hi, this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we're here with Jeff Rich. Jeff is in the New England area. So Jeff, if you would take a few minutes to talk a little bit about yourself and your company and then I'd like to jump in and talk a little bit about some of the transactional stories that you have in your career. So Jeff, take it away.
2: Sure, happy to be here. And you know my my company is Touchstone Advisors. My uh partner and I are the uh principals at the firm. We are a regional Lower middle market M and A firm stretching uh, from Boston through New York City, Connecticut, and New York City, and down towards Washington D.C. And uh, we have a team of advisors from varied backgrounds. And um, our specialty is working with uh, business owners or family-owned businesses, first, second, third generation that uh, maybe. May have determined that it's finally time for them to sell their company and are looking to try to position themselves for the best possible exit that they are able to. And uh, our goal is to assist them. So we work with typically business owners with a million to 10 million of EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And I'm coming to you today from my house, thanks to COVID, in Windsor, Connecticut.
1: All right. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit about your background and where you're located in in your home up there. And I think we're all in our houses nowadays. So let's jump right into it, Jeff. Share a transaction that you've been involved in that didn't really go all that well, may have gotten to closing, maybe not. And talk a little bit about who the owner was and what type of business it was.
2: Sure. Uh, well, there's definitely one that I would like to have back if I could and get a second shot at, to be sure. And um, this was a great little business. Uh, had been growing very rapidly in the past several years. That's always a very positive thing in terms of positioning for an exit. Buyers love to see growth, steady, consistent growth. They love that. And this business was growing at 30 to 40% a year. Um, So that was just terrific. They were positioned perfectly for an exit. Although I have to confess, it was an exit they never intended to have to execute on. We got a call from a business consultant to the client that had known Touchstone for for many years. And they called us, and they made an interesting and hard to duplicate filtration part for natural gas turbines, uh, both large turbines that would be used for power you know power plants, right on down to more modestly sized uh, gas turbines, cogen type turbines. and great business. Um, founder owned had owned the company for probably 20, 25 years, uh, and um, growing very quickly. I mean this company three, four years before was probably six, seven, eight million. Three, four years later, they were uh, expecting to do 20 million in revenue this year with four million of EBITDA up from two and a half million the year before and Perhaps a million the year before, million, million and a half the year before that. So just executing really, really well. And unfortunately, um, the owner got uh, wanderlust for another business, and he wanted to buy into it. It looked really attractive, and he was a visionary type, and certainly been very successful with this business of his. And so he uh, he told his CFO that he needed a a, million dollars or more than a million dollars to go and make an investment in this other company. So he told his CFO to go get the money, and the CFO did what he was told. Uh, Unfortunately, he did so by borrowing on the credit line of the business. Um, And taking that money, taking it out of the business, not using it for the business, and using it to make an investment in this other company. So I have to ask you, I assume that there were some pretty
1: strict covenants on the use of those uh, lines of credit that he had with the bank, right?
2: Well, I'm going to assume that too. And I'm going to tell you that even if there wasn't, and we were brought in sort of in a last-minute pullover, where's-the-fire-type situation, Um I'm going to tell you that even if there wasn't, I can assure you, and I and and you've already guessed, I, I'm sure, Martin, that uh, the bank was not too thrilled with this, uh, with with taking the funds and using them outside the business to buy another company. And as a result, they invited the customer to leave, and in fact said, "If you cannot, if you don't show us." A letter of intent with the intent from a bona fide third party to buy your company or somehow pay us back in the next several weeks, then uh, we're going to shut the doors, I mean, you know, unless you can pay us back. You
1: know, when you say shut the doors, you mean they're going to call in
2: their line of credit. They're going to call in their loan. And unfortunately, As often is the case for fast-growing businesses, as I'm sure some of your listeners may be fortunate to be in that position of growing fast, when you're growing fast, you typically don't have a lot of free cash flow. It's going right back into your business. And that was the case for them. So they didn't have the money. So we have a
1: situation here where you have a great business, you have a niche product, big demand for the business, you're growing exponentially, but the... Owner, as you said, has this shiny object syndrome and finds something that he wants to invest in and gets sidetracked here and uses the bank's money to do it. And they didn't appreciate that.
2: Exactly. So that was the call that we received at this point in time of the several weeks that the bank gave the client, you know, um, our client uh, to go and cast around for some sort of solution to get the bank's money back to them. Uh, they'd already expended a couple of those weeks before the consultant was allowed to give Touchstone a call and um, you know, bring us in to try to see if we could get an offer for them within a week. Well, I can promise you that's not the typical way Touchstone likes to operate. When we're engaged by a client, we like to take two or three months before we go to market to prepare a list of buyers to go to, to prepare the business for exit, dress up, whatever we can dress up, make it look just as attractive as possible. In fact, sometimes we're getting in there two to five years before a business closes if an an ownership team really wants to work with us on trying to position their business for a peak exit. So this was certainly outside of our typical comfort range in terms of trying to maximize an outcome for our clients. Thinking of all
1: the episodes that we've had here on business exit stories, I'm trying to think of another transaction, which I can't, quite frankly, that had such a short fuse. I mean, you're
2: talking 10, 14 days, right? Indeed. Uh, not, not anybody's idea of an, of an ideal situation. But it was what it it was, and we did at least have a business that was operating at the time on all cylinders, firing on all cylinders, and uh, so we had a good story, underlying story to tell. And listen, people can get into problems; it can happen. and And uh, we were able to go to we picked out specifically three private equity groups that we thought might have an interest in fact, all three did have an interest. All three of them flew up in that week and met with the ownership team, tried to understand the business, and actually prepared a letter of intent. One was certainly a fair offer. One was a a very nice offer. And one from one of the top five private equity groups worldwide, to be sure, uh, in terms of size, was a Over the top offer. I mean, they offered a number that was so stratospheric. I mean, it. it, it, You know, I I don't mind sharing it with you, uh, given that I'm not sharing the name of the company in question or where it where it was located. Um, Again, this company the year before had done two and a half million of EBITDA. This year, they were projected to do four million. And this company offered them $35 million. That's like, what, a 11-12 multiple on a forward basis? It, it Absolutely. If you're talking about on a cash-on-cash basis, on a forward basis, absolutely. And even on a go-forward basis, remember, they haven't achieved it yet. Bad things could happen. Uh, even on a forward basis of EBITDA, that's still an, uh, you know, between an 8 and 9 multiple. It was really... Uh, a good outcome, and it was coming from a company literally with billions of dollars of cash sitting there waiting to invest and That was perhaps the most exciting thing about it. Anybody can throw up a number, but are they actually able to close at the price that they offer? Well, that wasn't a, a factor here. this is this company could have written it out of that, written the check out of their petty cash drawer, so to speak so We really had, we thought, an excellent fit. And all this is in a week. This is what blows me away. That is
1: incredible. So I'm, I'm
2: just excited to find out how this proceeded. Well, you asked me to share a story that did not go so well. And I said, this is one I'd like to have back. And unfortunately, this one doesn't quite end with this happy outcome we thought we had achieved. It turned out, you know, and, and we knew this listen, when you're scrambling for a lifeline, right, uh, and you're overboard and somebody throws you a rope, you just grab the rope, and once you get pulled aboard pulled aboard, you'll, you'll, you'll worry about whether you got rescued by pirates or something. right? So um, there are no pirates in this story, but there is a young man with a dream and uh, With without thirty five million dollars, I guess is the fairest way to put it. Well, you know, obviously they were talking with multiple parties, as you would expect, both those that we had brought to the table and those that other investment banks or 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 or, uh, whoever they could find were bringing to the table. And there was one fellow who had had been brought to the table, really nice guy, smart, young. Young. And I never met him, but the owner just really kind of took a shine to him. Maybe he saw a lot of himself in him. I don't know, but he really liked it. And boy, he really wanted this fellow to... By his business. So just for clarification now, the
1: company is dealing with multiple companies like yourself, investment bankers and M&A people. That's correct. And they're each bringing people to the table. And so one person that was brought to the table is an individual versus a big private equity group with a lot of money. So what type of individual was he? He
2: was um certainly you know probably Ivy League educated, you know, got got a very nice pedigree and you know we the, the Harvard entrepreneurship program in the Harvard Business School pumps out, you know, 50 or 60 of these really bright young people a year and there's a lot of other schools that do this as well and they come out and alumni will back them to buy a business. Um and the you know they'll get a, a proportion of the equity but really the, the majority of the equity and therefore the decision as to what business is ultimately going to be bought falls into the hands of the alumni that are backing these young really bright people well this young really bright person was backed by uh you know some of these uh some of these people and um you know he said well yeah i think my investors would love to pay more than thirty-five. But you have an offer for thirty-five million. I'll, I'll pay thirty-five million in one dollar. And our client said, "Okay." He handed the LOI that our that had been offered over and said, "Okay, if you can beat this by a dollar, it's yours." So the guy signed it, and then he took it to his investors, um, and you know, and we'll get back to that in a second. But in the interim, you know, he he signed it, and our client uh, signed it as well, and so here's the thing about LOIs, they typically contain an exclusivity clause. Once you sign that, that LOI, you as the seller are not allowed to talk to any other prospective buyers. Well, that's exactly what happened. It's very typical. That's It's market standard. And uh, that's what took place. So my Client got back to me and very nice man. I liked him very much, very likable fellow and said, listen, Jeff, thank you so much for everything you did, bringing these people to the table. I really appreciate it, but I've decided to go in this other direction. And, um, and he did, and here's something that I really would have liked to have pressed the issue, maybe pressed the issue harder than I did, but here's one thing that I'm going to tell you. No search fund, which is what these these institutions are called, where they're backing a young young player with somebody else's money, is ever, and I mean never, ever, going to pay eight or nine times the forward EBITDA for a business. They just don't do it. They're all trained to buy businesses at about three to four times EBITDA. Maybe for the perfect business, they might stretch to five. So we knew this wasn't going to work. So, uh, but what could we do? Our client did what they thought was best. And, uh, you know, everybody's entitled to make a mistake. Um, so of course, you know, this dragged on for months, the bank of course was mollified for a period of time. Uh, but eventually even they said, well, Hey, you know, this been months here and there's no progression here towards closing. Well, of course there couldn't be because this guy he couldn't get his investors to pay a A super full price for this business. He just couldn't do it. He didn't want to go back and say, Listen, I don't think I can get this done. You know, he's a smart guy. He's going to be turning over every rock he can to try to make his dream come true. And of course, our client probably wanted him to and was giving him every benefit of the doubt. Meanwhile, time is ticking along and the bank's getting frustrated because there's no progression towards getting paid back. And then the the owner, the management team, and the owner, the CFO, his right hand man, and he started not getting along so well. So the CFOs were
1: the person that made the decision to draw down the line of credit, and he did uh, use that money to buy the
2: business. So there's probably a little bit of friction there. There's likely to have been some residual friction there, to be sure. Yes, and so you know, now he loses his right hand man, and then you know, and this is not. Not hard to do. It's easy to take your eye off the your business when you're selling your company. This is why it's it's really important to plan ahead. At any rate, for whatever reason, and we were gone from the picture at this point, well gone. And I learned all of this, uh, you know, much later. uh, Their business stopped growing, and in fact, started shrinking. And it turned out I, I learned about this about two years later when. I was meeting with another private equity group that does debt investments and they were in the area and wanted to meet up. We met up, we were chatting and I asked them why they were in the area. And they mentioned that they were in for a company they'd recently purchased uh, or bought into rather invested in and that they'd really gotten a, really seemed like a good deal. And uh, you know, they were really excited about this business. Well, uh, wouldn't you know, I connected the dots and said, well, hey, is it this business? And they said, well, yes, it is. How did you know? And so I told them the story, and then they told me their story, which is the company found itself in such a compromised position that they ended up selling half the company for $2 million. Holy smokes. When they could have sold 18 months earlier the whole company for $35 million. So they went from...
1: million from a well-heeled, large PE firm and ended up selling for 50% for $2 million. That's right. Wow. That is a, (laughs) I can see why you would want that one back. That's a sad outcome. Yeah. Wow, that's really. So really what would be the, the big takeaway from this? I mean, it's a sad story for sure. What would be the real takeaway from this?
2: I think the big takeaway from this is you can't assume or extrapolate the past into the future. There's We see this today in 2020 with COVID. Who, who could have imagined or who, would, who was predicting this in January or February? And look what happened. So... Um, I'm all in favor and I encourage my business owners to try to own their businesses for as long as they possibly want to and not sell until they're ready. But, uh, there, uh, I think that the big learning out of this is, is, is to not presume that just because, uh, things have been terrific and that, that, that will continue ad infinitum into the future. You really want to sell your business, before it peaks and hits the top. Once it hits the top and there are peaks and valleys, right? in any business life cycle, any, as I'm sure all your listeners would tell you themselves from personal experience, you really want to sell your business, you know when things are still going up and not wait so long that you start finding yourself on that downward slope for whatever the reason, because at that point you're in a really tough position. Your business every day is worth, worth less than it was the day before, and you're still anchored in there trying to get what you were able to get prior, and it's a really bad position to be in.
1: So I guess you're really saying, uh, kind of put another way, is things can change on a dime and you need to really prepare your exit carefully so you aren't forced into one you said it better than I could say it myself. That's really a great takeaway. And you certainly got the story to back it up, 35 million to 2 million. I mean, that is really sad. Well, let's chat a little bit more about another story that would have a takeaway for it.
2: Sure. So I mentioned that nearly all the time we work to represent family-owned or uh, founder-owned businesses as they're looking to exit. But every once in a while, we may come across a private equity group who we've tried to sell one or more of our engagements to, and they may have competed for, to acquire that business and got outbid and may have said, well, boy, if you could sell that company for that price, why don't you come and sell my company? Well, that's what happened in this particular situation that I'm going to relate, Marvin. And this company was a small uh, private equity company. Uh, owned business in the automotive accessory space. And um, it had been a disappointing, uh, a disappointing business uh, for this portfolio, for, for this private equity group, a disappointing portfolio company. They had, it was a kind of niche and they found it to be difficult to grow either organically or through acquisition. And what really sort of uh, hurt them more than anything was that a lot of the accessories that they were selling um, into car dealerships. Uh, when you you know when you buy your car, they may say, "Well, do you want the moonroof option, or do you want a remote car starter, or do you want?" Um, you know this add-on or that on accessory. Well, they provided these to a lot of car dealerships across the country, and also provided these services in the aftermarket to direct the consumer. Uh, so they would come to your house and you know uh, install a remote char- uh, car charger or put a cut a sunroof, uh, believe it or not, into your car, or give you le- leather seats where you had cloth or vinyl before, and um, and off you go. And unfortunately, more and more uh, car companies were starting to offer these products standard in their base models, let alone their luxury-grade models. You know? And, and they, the private equity group was start, you know, had realized that, well, hey, if they keep making all of these products standard, Um, pretty soon there's going to be nothing left for us to add into new cars. And then it's only taking care of legacy vehicles that somebody wants to uh, pimp my ride with. right? So um, they had a real problem here. And so they did a very good job of trying to manage for cash flow. Like any private equity group, they didn't put down all cash. They put a lot of debt on the business and managed carefully to pay that debt down. And they were doing an excellent job of that. The management team was performing very well in a challenging environment. But they came to us and they said, uh, to Touchstone, and they said, listen, we want you to know that you have to sell this business in about nine months because we're estimating that within one year, this business is really going to kind of fall off a cliff and we need to sell it. In order to make money for ourselves and our shareholders, we need to sell it before that happens. Fine. So we proceed, and um, we actually were able to get them two terrific offers. It, definitely an overpay, even looking at the historicals of the business and not factoring in the potential impending cliff. We had two very interested parties. One party was it was their first t- a group of executives that w- had determined they wanted to own something in the automotive related space. They had the backing of uh, you know were very close friends. I think one of them was the best man at uh, the wedding of the owner of a seven billion dollar auto parts company. So certainly, presumably, if if uh, a lot of money uh, to to close this transaction, but this was their first. Uh, very smart guys, brilliant guys, but this was their first rodeo. Just kind of like in the previous example, it was this really bright fellow's first chance to try to buy a business with help. Similar situation. They put up the highest offer, which was my clients were very the private equity group were very happy with, and then we received a second very good offer, a little bit lower than this other uh, this other you know top offer, but but certainly a full full price to be sure. And this was from a large private equity group with plenty of money, Um, but it was to act as an add-on for one of their portfolio companies that was a fleet washing business for tractor trailer and trucking companies across the country. And this was a little bit unusual. They had an angle on this as to how they were going to roll out some of the services that our client, my client offered, the portfolio company offered, um, they were going to offer it to all these truck co- companies at, across the country. And this was going to be a whole other line of business for them. And uh, the executive was running the company who the private equity group had partnered with, loved this idea. He just loved it. And he was a really dynamic guy and very persuasive. And the private equity group thought this would be a really good fit. So my client was in the enviable position of having not just one great offer to choose from, but two, he decided, uh, the, the final decision maker at the private equity group, that he was going to take the offer from the more established party. Uh, there was some risk to this. What would be the risk to this? Cause you have a private
1: equity group that does these deals all the time, have a lot of money, no one in the industry. What would be the
2: risk? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Marvin, cause it's a great, it's a great, a great point. And the risk is something that we call in the investment banking industry, the PE 30 day pitch, which is a private equity group will get an idea of something, they'll throw out an offer, and if it gets accepted, they are thrilled to take you know, the first 30 days to figure out whether what they have, their hypothesis, so to speak, what their investment rationale is really makes sense. So in other words, they haven't done tons and tons and tons of work before they put their offer in. Once their offer goes in, they're going to do the work. And they did. And they did the work. And the fear is, and it proved founded in this particular case, that they um, look and they decide, you know what? It's an interesting idea. We're glad we took a look, but this is really not exactly what we want to do. Um, Marvin, in real estate, they always tell me it's location, 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 right? But in, uh, for private equity groups, I've learned that for them, it's focus, focus, focus. And I believe they determined during that period of time that this would be a diversion from the focus of cleaning trucks for transportation companies.
1: So they got a 30-day free look to do
2: all their homework. Essentially a 30-day free look, right? Because there's going to be a normal due diligence process anyways, right? So they basically took advantage. We, you know, we're always concerned about this. So you try to keep this initial period of exclusivity short until they demonstrate meaningful process, but you've got to give them an opportunity to look around. So I'm just curious,
1: we have the situation that's the driver behind the sale of this company, that there was this storm cloud on the horizon that was coming, that they anticipated 12 months out that the business was going to erode as these options on the accessories of the car became standard equipment. So
2: how did that work out? Yeah. So you're asking the perfect question because my client thought, okay, so here's what'll happen. We'll give the, the party that's got that we know has the capacity to close and close easily. We're going to push them to get, to give us the real answer, the final answer in 30 days. And if it doesn't work, we'll just pivot back to the guys who wanted to pay more. And you know what? They'll probably be thrilled because they've been. This was exactly the kind of company they wanted to buy, and the industry they wanted to buy. And they'll be thrilled. We'll have. We'll go to our plan B, and we've got redundancy, right? Um, and and so we did just that. And wouldn't you know? In that thirty-day period, these uh, gentlemen found another company to buy. And had gone under letter of intent with another company, which they did not like as much, but which they were now in bed with and committed to and and going down the path to. And they said, you know, if something happens here, maybe we'll get back to you. You know, we'll certainly get back to you. And maybe we could talk then if you haven't sold the company to somebody else. Well, now we're in a bad spot because as you stated, we know there's this impending cliff. And oh, by the way, during this period of time, that cliff had actually ended up being uh, com- coming to bear sooner than we might have expected. So you're anticipating 12 months and it came in what, six months? About six months. Exactly. Yeah. And so now my client is watching as their portfolio company is posting, you know, t- sales that are each month that are about 20 to 25% below the previous year's calendar month. Not good. And EBITDA even more below that. So now we're in a situation that's not great. Well, how did this roll out then? Well, the good news for this client is that they did end up selling. But they had to sell at a price that was 40% below the first two offers. And so instead of getting a return on their capital and a return for their investors, they were lucky to get out with their, with their getting their money back, getting their equity back.
1: So in this situation, what would be the real takeaway then? Because it looks like they kind of planned to do everything right. I mean, they took the higher offer, the more established player, and then they went back to, Plan B,
2: and that didn't work. what's the takeaway here? Timing's everything. Uh, you know, six months before, six months later, six months later, they wouldn't be able to sell their company at all, and they would be riding this thing into the ground, and it's heading to the ground. Uh, six months earlier, they would have gotten out at that price and had the time to either wait around or cast around for other buyers in, at or near, the, or perhaps even above the price point they achieved uh the first time around so timing in the end timing is all important
1: well i i think that's something for those business owners listening in to jot that down because timing does turn out to be everything i mean you really went from two or three x here to
2: almost a real dog that could have went to zero very quickly and in fact for the acquirers i i I fear is going to end up at zero for our audience
1: out there I'm taking many of the stories and their takeaways, including some of the ones here shared today by Jeff Rich of Touchstone, plus years of real-life business experience that I have had over the years and putting these insights into a new book called Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. If you would like to get in on a pre-publication offer, just go to the website, that's www com forward slash book and register for this offer again go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash book for this exclusive offer now let's get back to our episode okay we're back here with jeff uh, jeff why don't we move into a couple of transactions here that uh, had a little
2: bit smoother ride and maybe worked out really well for both buyers and sellers sure yeah, there's one transaction that definitely comes to mind. We kind of use it as an example of why we never market with a price. You know, we are certainly not the only people that never, investment bankers out there that never market with a price. There are plenty of people that run what's called an auction process where you don't market your business with a price tag. But I can't tell you how important this is. And this example is a great example. So, for
1: our audience out there that might seem that this is a little strange that you wouldn't put a price on a business because everyone wants to know the price, what's the logic
2: and philosophy behind that from your perspective? That's a great question. Um, There are two reasons. First, you may have people who see a price tag, they're interested in your business, but they see the price tag. And the uh, financial performance, and they said, "Well, I'm never going to pay that much for that business." And so they, you know, cast it aside. Don't look any further. And if they really understood the nuts and bolts of that company, they might have been very comfortable paying that price. So a price tag can scare some people away that are real buyers. And then conversely, and this is perhaps even more important. Uh, is that if you put a price tag on it, the one thing that I can guarantee you is that nobody's going to be lining up to offer you more than that price tag. And so you lose the ability for price discovery, right? You lose the ability to, deter- to find out exactly how much your business is worth. And when it's really important to understand that when you're selling a company or creating a market, For a private company, your goal is not to sell it to the to to the market, to the consensus. It's to sell it to the party that values it for some reason or another, real or imagined, differently and at a higher price point than everybody else. That for whatever reason values it more highly and finds it more attractive. So in MA, when we're representing any, anybody in our industry, when we're representing a, a client, we're not looking to sell it for what the consensus, we're looking to sell it to the party that wants to pay the most, right? So um, this situation, we do work before we go to market because it can be very disruptive to businesses to go to market. Your, man- your management team, your ownership team, their minds are focused in more than one place. Their attention is somewhat diverted from being solely focused on running their business. Uh, you may have key employees that you don't want to know that, y- that you happen to be... F- at sale to you know at market to sell and they may find out that may be detrimental to you some of your customers that you would like not to find out at the, at this point in time may find out that could be detrimental to the business so there's a lot of reasons to not go to go to market so let me ask you jeff in this
1: situation when you have a buyer that there isn't a price tell me a little bit
2: about how the offer started to come in sure so we um, did some benchmarking with our client before we went to market, and we all collectively determined that we would be very, very happy, content with an offer of 10 to $11 million for this business, and thrilled with the price of 12 That would be just a great day. We would all be very happy with that outcome. So everyone was on the same page with what they would accept. Everybody was on the same page, and that's really important. Uh, you, you've got to have consensus from your, uh, the client and from the advisors that the client hires that the price point is achievable. Otherwise, you risk harming your business by going to market. Really should then focus on try doing what you need to do operationally to get the price point that the ownership or shareholder group needs, right? Uh, so we had consensus, we went to market, and we were. Uh, Barraged with interest. It was a, a great position to be in. There was more interest than we could possibly grant management calls or meetings to. We were in one of those positions, which happens sometimes, where you actually have to kind of narrow down the field. There's just too many people interested. So, what we did to try to get a bead on who were the contenders versus the pretenders was to ask for indications of interest, which is kind of an intermediate step between bringing your business to market and letters of intent, where you ask people to sort of back of the envelope, give you an idea of what they're thinking they might be willing to pay for this business. So wouldn't you know, I think we got 10 uh, indications of interest that were all clustered in that $10 to $12 million range that we had said we would be happy with. And then we received one offer at 15 million, which was amazing. And another one at 18 million. And in fact, the party at 18 million uh, said, listen, we don't want this to go to an, a letter of intent. We don't want to risk losing this business. We know we're overpaying and we don't care. We are making what's known as a market clearing offer at $18 million. And we want you to sign a letter of intent with us right now. And you know what? We decided to do that. And the transaction closed. And my clients were thrilled that if we had... Let's let's go back to marketing with the price for a second, Marvin. So let's pretend we had put a price tag of $14 million on this business. Okay. Two things would have happened. I can guarantee you we wouldn't have gotten 10 offers at 10 to 12 million. We probably would have gotten three or four. And then that party that offered 15 million, why would they have offered 15 if we were, if we were offering it, the business at 14 and the company at 18 million that bought it at 18 million never would pay 18 million. They'd say, oh, great. We're getting a deal. We'll get it for 14 You want 14 Here you go. And my client would have lost out on $4 million. So the big takeaway from that, I would say, is that you never know how somebody else may evaluate your business, what, may be, what they may be thinking, what they may know that you don't know about what they're trying to accomplish. And if I can just share a little story, we subsequently found out what this company was thinking. Well, it turns out that they were a company that had uh, a, a distribut- distribution across the entire United States, except for New England. And six months before we went to market, we could never have known this, they lost out on one of the very few other companies like this in New England. And it lost out, and somebody else bought it. And they had a whole nationwide coverage with the New England hole. And they needed to fill that hole. They wanted to fill that hole. So that makes sense. They told us they wanted to fill that hole. That makes sense. Okay, maybe that's why you paid so much. Well, that's only part of why they paid so much. What we did not know is they had their own exit strategy that they were contemplating. And they knew the two or three parties that wanted to buy them. And they knew that in order to do that, they would get far more for their business if they could claim really to be a nationwide business versus nationwide minus new england so paying an extra 3 million dollars over the second place offer for this business was well worth it to them because they sold their business 18 months later at a price that would have valued the the business they bought from us at 30 million and they didn't just get that premium on this little part of the business, you know, $12 million extra that they got on this part, they got that premium on the entire country. You know what they ended up exiting their business for? Uh, well, it, I think it was at a, uh, about 15x. EBITDA versus the nine that we sold our company to them at. So a six multiple greater.
1: So that must have put it into the hundreds of millions of dollar sales price.
2: Exactly. They sold the business for several hundred million dollars. So I think the point
1: is that for them, this was a steal, even though it was uh, over the fence home run for your client, they made out like bandits. It was even a bigger deal for them to pay a few bucks extra in the grand scheme of things to nail down their exit strategy. Something for our audience to file away and to think about. This whole concept of price discovery, I think, is something that isn't talked about a lot. Well, let's wrap it up here today, Jeff, and talk about a transaction that went well
2: again and great takeaway from this. Sure. I'm going to switch it up a little bit and give you a a company, a current client of mine, not a past one, but one that is currently at market. And I want to bring them up and use them as an example because they are like the quintessential case study for how to go about preparing to exit your business. Um, So many times, people wake up, they look in the mirror, it's November or December, and they say, "Oh God, I can't do this anymore. I've owned my business for this many years, and you know, I I, I just want to be done. I've, I've had enough." And that is a very normal feeling. But the best exits occur when there is sometimes two to five years of preparation that you know you have the presence of mind to pick yourself up out of your business for a second working in it and think about working on it. And um, think about the fact that, yeah, you're 55, you're 60 or 62, whatever, but at some point you're going to be 65 or 67 or for whatever reason, don't want to own the company anymore and plan towards an exit. Tell me a little bit about the client, who the
1: owners were, what their background is, and the opportunity they saw in their business to grow it.
2: You bet. So this company is in a very unique little niche um, that has become very popular, and it is manufacturing R&D tax credits. So as a business owner, some of your listeners may be manufacturers, and um, They may do R and D to figure out the next product they're going to create, to work on some tooling. It could even be used for a new food product, right? A cupcake or what have you doesn't matter. And um, government uh, had a uh, these credits, but they had to be renewed at the end of every year. And that really limited the attractiveness and the adoption rate of these tax credits. It's not something that your average accountant is going to be that familiar with, uh, and they're probably not going to be equipped to do. It's kind of complicated for their clients. So there were a variety of small companies around the country and a couple bigger ones that provided these services, but probably less than 10% of the manufacturing populace that would qualify for these credits were taking advantage of them. Okay, so let's just rewind here so our audience can get a little bit clearer
1: picture of what these tax credits are all about. Most of our audience is probably familiar with what a tax credit is. It's a direct credit against uh, taxes owed. And in this particular case, you have research and development costs, or a percentage of them can be taken as a direct credit against tax liability. But the problem was, as I hear you describing this situation, is is that this legislation in the tax code was not permanent. It was renewed every year. So you didn't really know at the end of the year if the next year this credit was going to be available. So it limited the attractiveness of putting in all the work that the tax credit may disappear the next year. But that became, as I hear you talking about it, it became permanent.
2: It became permanent in 2015 when the
1: PATH Act. That's PATH, like P as in Paul ATH, PATH Act, right? Precisely. Okay. So in 2015, this became legislation on a permanent basis, which changed the landscape dramatically.
2: It did. Now, uh, manufacturers are for- far more likely, as they learn about this credit or it is introduced to them, to say, oh, great, you know, we have to do, the work but you know we the work isn't all going to be for one year we're going to be able to then get the credit the next year the next year and it's a far more powerful sales proposition right in terms of return on the the work involved in doing it and so not surprisingly the industry has become much more attractive it's grown because it's grown less than 10% of the uh, manufacturers out there were using it, and the adoption rate is creeping up as uh, people underst- learn about it, understand it, and understand that they can save money on their taxes and who doesn't love doing that at the end of every tax year? So um, not surprisingly, these companies have had a uh, a nice tailwind behind them, and the Husband and wife that owned this particular business, he's an engineer by training, believe it or not, but uh, ended up learning the tax code in this area and is an expert on it now. And his wife handled all the back office and administration stuff. When this when this hit, they were excellent. They had a very small company, four or five employees, but they were making a, a good living, you know, very good living, a couple three hundred thousand dollars a year to work hard all year and hey, they had two very well-paying jobs. When this hit, they immediately worked very carefully on a 10-year plan, five years to get their business to the point with the backdrop, with the tailwind they had with the tax law, to get them to the end of 2020 when they would be in position to If they were, if they'd done everything they said they thought they could do and executed on it to be in a position to achieve their life exit dream, sell their company for $10 million, right? And um, then a further five year goal to demonstrate to a buyer and prove out that just because they put their foot on the gas to get to that point, that to build a company that was sustainable and had the opportunity to grow further for a buyer. Going forward, and so uh, they are people of their word. They do everything they say they're going to do, and they are careful and diligent planners. They no plan pr- uh, completely survives contact with the enemy, right? Some famous general that I can't remember said that, and um, the, you know they adjusted their plan, brought staff on. In fact, to the point that now you know they were a million dollars, maybe making a a couple hundred thousand for themselves to work hard all year uh, in 2015. As we sit here in 2020, even in the midst of the disruption of COVID, they're on track to hit $5 million of revenue with 19 employees, which is more than they actually need, and uh, to generate $2 million of EBITDA, which will pretty much secure them, uh, guaranteed will secure them that $10 million exit that that they've always dreamed of. And um, I, I mentioned that they have more employees than they actually need. That's because, they, again, I told you they're not taking their foot off the gas just because they've reached their first goal. Those 19 employees, when they probably really only need 15 or 16, are, are enough employees to get them to $3 million of EBITDA, uh, and they have a very high confidence level of doing so somewhere in mid-2022 or late 2022. So they've got a very careful plan. They've executed it to it. They've built, taken really kind of a mom-and-pop type, really good mom-and-pop type business and built a systemic organization, Um, really planned, really been careful. And look where they are, right? They are right now at the point of achieving where I got a letter of intent yesterday, actually, and I'll get two more later this week. And these are people who have knocked on their door. We haven't even... And gone to market. Um, so people know how attractive this industry is. The top accounting firms are, all want to be all things to all people. They're trying to build these practices or buy them. And boy, isn't it easier to buy than to build because it can take years to build. So um, they're at the point now where, you know, as I've told them, listen, you could hit your dream right now or and, and only you will decide what's best for you to do. Um, but if you want to wait another eight months, with the growth that you're projected to have and showing two million of EBITDA in the rearview mirror on five million of revenue and being on track for six and a half and 2.7 in 2021, I think that I can sell you for two or three million dollars more than that. And so they're in a position where, through careful planning, they actually have, not only to. Hit their goal, which, by the way, I mean they were making $200 five years ago, two hundred thousand. Now they are making ten times that amount. So they, they've, you know, I just I think it's a great example for people that setting goals, working towards them, having a careful plan, executing to that plan can help you achieve really, really, really special things. And they are an easy client to work with. I, I, I can promise you because. They've essentially done all the work. I don't have to stretch to get them their offer. I'm in a position of being the gas while they're trying to be the brake saying, hey, we're ready to retire. We're okay with a lower amount. And I'm telling them, I think I can get them more. So um, it, I just think they're a really good example. You talked about preparation a little bit earlier and failure to prepare. They're a great example of what preparation can do. For a business. Well, really, even beyond
1: that, as I hear you describe the personality of the people that are involved and the type of things that they have done, they are really in the driver's seat right now. They will sell when they're ready to sell. They're not going to be forced into it. If something starts to change dramatically, they have everything in place. They can go to market immediately. Uh, they have positioned themselves to control their own destiny. And even if something catastrophic were to happen, they are much more in control than most companies are. Is that a fair statement? I, I think you
2: summed it up far better than I
1: could have. Well, this has been great. You've shared with us, Jeff, a lot of interesting stories, some with spectacular failure and some with opportunities for over-the-fence, home-run type of success beyond what people could have ever thought that was possible. So, I think our audience will appreciate some of these takeaways. If someone wanted to reach out and chat with you and chat a little bit more about your business in the Northeast or other parts of the country that makes sense
2: for them to reach out to you, how would they do that? Sure. Well, they can always get me on my cell phone, which is 860-818-6064. Wherever I am in the country or world, that is always with me. So that's always a way one good way to reach out. I'm still a phone guy. I know uh, we're starting to become a little bit passe to, to some people, but uh, I'm, I'm still a phone guy. I do answer my phone. I will call you back. Uh, and I love hearing from business owners and trying to help them. And then, of course, our website, touchstoneadvisors.com. Uh, my email address happens to be jrich at touchstoneadvisors.com. But we have uh, seven advisors at our firm, and any one of them uh, would do, would do a splendid job for uh, any business owner. And, uh, and also you can find me on LinkedIn as well, as well as our firm, Touchstone Advisors.
1: Well, thanks for the time. It's been interesting. It's been fascinating. I think there's some great takeaways here. So this is Marvin L. Storm from Business Exit Stories. We'll see you on our next episode.
0: Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.
1: Remember to get your pre-publication edition of my new book, Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. Simply go to businessexitstories.com forward slash book. Again, that's businessexitstories.com forward slash book. If you register now for my pre-publication edition, I will send you a discount code that you can use on Amazon for a 90% off copy of your book as a reward for being a Business Exit Stories podcast listener.